with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everyone, welcome to episode 101 of the Phrenesis podcast. And you know what? I'm excited today because we are going back to episode one. So my guest For those of you who've been playing along here, is Dave Rush. He was actually our first guest. He's now our 101st guest. And Dave is at the University of Illinois. He's an associate professor of leadership studies, and he is an expert in the study and practice of developing student leaders. I am so excited to have you back, Dave. It's been 100 episodes. I'm thinking it may have been about March 2020. I think that that's when this project began and I'm still in my bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little sad. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, it's not sad. It's good. It's good. I don't normally record from my bedroom, but circumstances today, I'm kind of relegated to the bedroom. And we were talking a little bit about before we started, how throughout these last couple of years, we've probably worked in some interesting spots in different nooks and crannies of our homes. And uh, this afternoon as we record, it just happens to be the bedroom. So uh, Dave, uh, thank you so much for being back. Uh, obviously, we've been in, in dialogue in recent months and, and really doing some nice writing. And you participated in those in the episode with Keith Eigel and Carl Kuhnert, which was so much fun. I don't know. I mean, you know, you started off this journey with such a perfect quote and it was something like to the effect of, you know, I have a fear 
I fear that we're not making a difference. So this is back in March, 2020, you know, in the prehistory of Phrenesis. Yeah. All the things that we're trying to do in formal leadership education, we're not really, we're not really making a dent in how students are developing. We're, we're still leaving it up to chance. Some students are, are taking what we're, we're doing and they're running with it and they're growing and some other students are not. And, and we have no systemic knowledge of uh, how to do a better job in that. I am excited to get some of your current thinking on that topic. How do we get that systemic knowledge? What are you thinking? What, what's top of mind for you in recent months as you kind of think about that puzzle? Because it's such a fun, beautiful, wonderful puzzle. And I can't wait to hear what, what's at least got your attention in recent times. Sure. Well, a few different things. Uh, the first is that I think the folks who are new at studying leadership, one of the first things they hear about is that we have a thousand different definitions of what it means to lead. It's an oft-cited quote about the concept of leadership studies. And I actually don't agree with that. I think that most people, when they they teach leadership, there's more consensus than, than we think. And I would like to start some conversation in our field around what does it really mean to be an effective leader in a way that we can we can all get around uh, around some agreement on. I think that there are there's definitely going to be diversity around the edges. There's definitely going to be context specific concepts and skills and attributes and knowledge that different people need to know uh, how to lead effectively in different environments. But I honestly believe that there's more agreement about what constitutes effective leadership across these contexts than we might think. Yeah. It's it's easy to point to. Uh, the fact that there is no consensus, but I think that we need to start doing the hard work of having some conversation around consensus building. Well, and even coming to some shared general understandings so that we can start building a body of knowledge based around some of those shared understandings. I mean, people right now are still using terms like leadership development, leadership skill building, leadership education, leadership learning, like they're synonymous. And I don't know necessarily that they are or that they should be. So at least a group of folks kind of has to come to some general consensus. And then how do we move forward building from there? And it may not be that, as you said, in every context, those are the definitions being used, but at least some faction of people has to begin building with a shared understanding. <laughs> I, t- I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and the problem, like wh- how we got here, I think is relatively simple to understand. Leader- leadership is multidisciplinary. There are fo- folks who are coming at it from a perspective of, of business and management. There are folks who are coming at it from the perspective of an educator. There are folks who are coming at it from the perspective of a community developer, et cetera, et cetera, and, and on, and uh, psychology, sociology. Uh, so I, I think that the language that those disciplines use are a little different. So I think that, I mean, it, it's logical that we would have some ambiguity in terms of vocabulary. I, to be clear, I, I, I don't think the issue is vocabulary per se, but I think that we haven't, we just need to get all those folks together in a room and say, well, what do we agree with? There are things that we disagree with and, and rightly should disagree with across context. And there should be different things that different people focus on. I would like to, I, I would just like there to be a little bit more clarity. Uh, when we say we're trying to develop leaders, this is generally what we mean. <laughs> but you know, I, I I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. I could not agree with you more. What else? What else have you been thinking about? Well, before we move on, I mean, you and I have been talking a little bit about this. Even something, you know, like constructive developmental theory, 
we we've been going back and forth on on just the very many ways that that is being communicated in the literature and so everyone wants to put their little spin or their angle or their caveat to what what's being built and again i think it just it, it gets to be gnarly and confusing right i agree i agree and and the listeners of your podcast know that you've communicated over the past you've talked to some really awesome people over the past few episodes about the general uh, consensus that they're writing about is trying to help leaders and emerging leaders see things in new, more complex, more mature ways. But yet they're all using different vocabulary to talk about not identical concepts, but overlapping concepts. It would be good to start talking about, well, what what do we mean in, in a disciplined way when we think about those concepts? Because even, even constructive developmental theory you know, it's it's identity development, ego development, levels or orders of consciousness, meaning-making systems, perspective-taking capacity, intellectual functioning, wisdom development, mental complexity, complexity of mind, leader <laughs> development levels, vertical development, developmental stage, action logics, self-authorship, meaning structures. <laughs> so, so, so far, I've counted six different independent breaths that you needed to take in reading that list, Scott. Meaning-making logics and orders of development. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a lot to digest, right? Like, it, and, and I would guess most listeners, if you're, you're just sitting here uh, taking a jog on the treadmill, listening to Phronesis, your eyes are starting to glaze over as, as you're, you're listening. Well, it, it, but but the I mean it's a it's a it's a point well taken, right? Like when you when you think about those concepts stacked up on e, uh, on each other, it's a lot to think about. But there's a lot of overlap uh, across those things, and I and I think it's it's daunting to address that literature in a comprehensive way uh, without it being simplified into well, what are the overlaps and how do those overlaps relate to helping students learn how to lead in more effective ways. Exactly. Exactly. What else? What else has been on your radar, sir? What else has been on my radar? Well, you, so like I, w- I was thinking about, so I'm an educator. I, I mo- Most of the students that I, I teach are uh, University of Illinois undergraduates. So they're uh, mostly upper-class students in our minor and leadership studies. These are 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds, sometimes 22-year-olds on the cusp of graduating. And it's difficult for them as they come in, like the classes that I teach are generally uh, more advanced than the intro-level classes. So we're now yeah. getting into some specific capacity building beyond just understanding the fun, the like the the foundational concepts of of what it means to lead effectively. And they still come to our, to my classes at least. Uh, they have their notebooks out. They have their their pencils ready. Actually, that's probably a 20th century example. They have their laptops <laughs> out. They have their 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 earbuds in, and and they're ready to take notes. And it's difficult for them to see the complexity in what it means to lead. I know you and I have had some conversations around this. I, I talked to some other educators. Like, pick, pick any leadership concept that might be in an undergraduate leadership course. So, like, I teach a team dynamics course. So, we probably spend a week on conflict management and, and effective conflict management techniques and uh, the Thomas Kildman model and and how it relates to different models and methods of of effective leading. And, and students, they take their notes and they memorize the model and they they think about how those, they might be able to be applied in, in certain scenarios. But yet, it's still really difficult to think about how would you do that when it's really just on you and you're not there's not an instructor looking over your shoulder ready to give you a grade. Like I, I know uh, Ron Ron Heifetz was was recently on your your podcast and I, I taught in the past classes on helping students understand the adaptive leadership model and the the concept of of turning up the heat 
well, building a container uh, where people are able to effectively have these, these, these conversations, I introduced to students, this is, there's a biological precursor to <laughs> our understanding of adaptive leadership. And Heifetz has talked about this too, like thinking about uh, how chimps grew into humans. They grew up in, in what at that point in time was the, ra- the rainforest of what is now Iraq, Iran. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you go to those places right now in the Middle East, those are those are semi-arid environments. There are no rainforests. There are no chimpanzees there anymore. And it's because they they started to dry out. And I tell the story to my students. Imagine you're a chimpanzee with all your chimpanzee family members and friends living up in these trees and you're seeing it dry out and there aren't as many trees anymore and there aren't as many bananas and other areas for food and it's not as safe for you anymore. Imagine being that chimp that said, you know, listen, family and friends, you know what we need to do? We need to climb down from these trees. (laughs) And I know we don't know how to walk and we're not built this way, but we need to go somewhere where I have no idea where to go or what it's going to look like or how it's how we're going to live, but we can't live here. We have to leave. Think about what it was like for that first chimp to communicate that in the way all the other chimps looked at them. Like, yes, these are not skills that we cover right now in most of our undergraduate leadership classes to deal with the complexities and stresses of, of societal interrelationships where, where that happens. Like I know Robert Keegan and you and I talk about his, his constructive developmental uh, theories a lot, his book in over our heads, right? Igel and Kuhner talked about this in, in the podcast that I was your guest on in over our heads. We're in over our heads when we just talk about the general mental demands of modern life. Yeah, We need to teach our students to manage those demands better, especially in a leadership context where other people are going to be looking at them because that's what that's why leaders get paid the big bucks. Well, and using the classroom, what I loved about the conversation with Ron Heifetz and, and I, the reason I respect his work so much is that he's really trying to use that classroom as a laboratory trying to use. And and also I had forgotten, I had experienced the exercise that he does where you kind of go over a failure and you diagnose and you really pick apart this failure that you experienced as a leader. And that's a really powerful, powerful opportunity for people to make meaning of what happened and potential options they had that maybe they didn't realize they had at the time. I just have great respect for how he's thinking about pushing the mark. He's at the margins on a couple different fronts, whether it's theory building, but also his work from a pedagogical standpoint of actually trying to train people to be more in tune, be more aware of what's happening in front of them, uh, diagnosing or coming up with with interpretations, at least. I think that's so cool. I agree. And and what, what's sticking out about what you're talking about, Scott, to me, or like the, the vocabulary words, diagnosing, and interpreting, and, and you're talking about making meaning with thing, well, of things. And I keep going back and forth with the idea of uh, we're teaching these concepts, but we're not teaching students how to make more effective meaning of what's going on in front of them so that they can apply the concepts in their actual life on a minute to minute basis when their team is looking at them that to diagnose what's going on and help them have a conversation about how they might address that. It's difficult when all they've thought about are the fact that they know that there's five approaches to conflict, according to the Thomas Kilman model. That's that's <laughs> not enough. That's not enough. And, and that's so like a year, what was this now? A uh, hundred weeks ago, the, the fear that I had was that we're not making a difference. I, the way I would, I would frame it now is, is that I, I feel like 
It's not that we're not making a difference. I think we are making a difference for students. I don't think we're making a systemic enough difference across the diversity of populations that are coming to us. The stu- our, our undergraduate students, I, like I teach at the University of Illinois here at the United States, that's, that's a certain subset of the diversity of the human population. But if you think about that broad diversity, we need to be able to address all of these situations in a more systemic way to help them diagnose what's really going on and make decisions. And that requires them to have an understanding of what effective leaders do and to make meaning of their their unique circumstances than to be able to make decisions given what I know about what it means to lead. Well, and I know I sound like a little bit of a broken record here. I just keep coming back to it. You can You can put a surgeon in a classroom and teach them about the act of surgery, but that does not make them a surgeon. And that does not incorporate the emotions and the feelings that, that, that encapsulate someone that, that rush through someone when something's not going right in the heat of the moment. And that does not in any way, shape or form touch on the kinesthetic needs of actually performing the surgery. There's just so many different orientations of learning that we have to be touching to ensure that there's competence. Again, we could go to you know a cooking example. You can see, I can watch a YouTube video on the elements of a great peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> and I'm sure you have. <laughs> but I think I think that's the opportunity that's really fun to think about. And again, going back to Ron Heifetz, I, I respect the fact that he's using this space, which is the classroom, which is a certain container, but trying to push the boundaries on creating a bit of a practice field, this case in point methodology. So that there is a little bit of heat, there is some emotion, it is clo- more closely replicating some of what people will experience and feel in the real world. I mean, I just finished, I finished class just now about a week ago, literally a week ago today, where I had kind of introduced along with a colleague, a, a project for our students that was a pretty gnarly experience. And there's a very stark difference between talking about the concepts and getting an A on the exam and being able to, in real time, under stress, with heightened emotions, employ the concepts we've been discussing. You know, you can go to Erickson and getting into a place of automaticity, deliberate practice, but there's just, it's a chasm. It's a chasm. And rightfully so. Again, in any other context, if you taught me something in the classroom and then put me in a real context to perform CPR, it's a different situation. It's a different scenario. I agree. I totally agree. And and, and to your your point about uh, about surgeons, I think is is well taken. Right? Like it's one thing to think. It's one thing to learn about surgery. It's another thing to even practice it in a low risk environment with, with lots of mentors and other other folks around. It's a it's a whole other thing to be sitting in the emergency room. And it's all on you, right? And it's your CPR example. It's another another great example of that. That might be a little bit more simple. And and the thing that I think about is that, like, in our our medical profession is is pumping out. I, I don't know. I I don't have a great citation, but let's let let's say a few thousand medical doctors every year. And and I would say that most people who think about leadership studies would probably say that we need to be teaching more than a few thousand people a year and how to be good leaders across all the various diverse contexts in which they need to be leaders in. So I, I think about, well, how do we scale that up? Yeah. How do we scale that up? And, and what are some tools that we could utilize in classrooms around the world where there's, let's say, 60 undergraduate or graduate students in a single experience? 
what, what can we systemically do across these classrooms of 60 people that would help provide them to the tools where they could then go in, in, in advance on their own? Uh, we're not going to be able to put them all 60 in all these different classrooms in scenarios where they're performing CPR with all of the risks and costs yeah. and benefits associated with that. But we can put them in environments where they could probably think through and struggle through some scenarios in some approximation of real time where we can systemically put them in that situation, make a diagnosis, and then get some feedback from folks about how they may have done where they then go back and reflect about what they may have done better or what they did really well and what they need to do more of or things like that. And that's that's not perfect. That's not going to turn them into a leader in every scenario, but it will provide them a tool set to be able to expand their learning afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think about what what are those things? And I, and I don't know what they are, but I, I think that that's where our field needs to go. Well, it's interesting, Dave. I mean, it's a fun thought experiment because as I mentioned to you a couple of days ago, I'm reading Keegan and Leahy, and then there's some other associates with them, the Deliberately Developmental Organizations book. And they call it pan development. So, you know, everybody is is developing across the organization from the CEO to the newest team member. Everyone is placed into a culture of development consistently ongoing for the entire time you are in our organization, you are kind of in the context of development. And they also, it's interesting, they kind of say, look, pan development, we mean everyone across the organization, but then they also mean everyone at any stage of development in in the organization, that it can meet everybody's needs. So it's an interesting thought experiment because they're thinking about how to do this at scale. And there's a lot of examples in there where they're leveraging technology, where they are, they've created a culture that does the development. And I don't know that, that we often have that culture. We have a class or we have, so, so how do we more intentionally design a culture within an MBA or a culture within an undergraduate major where it's just how we do business and you're going to learn a lot of the content, whatever that is, marketing or agriculture, whatever it might be, but you also will be developing and growing in concert with that subject matter domain expertise, right? That you're building. Like if, if you read, if you read some of the cases that they're talking about, these are uncomfortable organizations. Oh, yes. To, 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 live, to live in a world of radical candor is not to sit in comfort with your feet up on the desk. No. And, and I, I think about like uh, some of the other things that Keegan and, and uh, Kunert and Nigel have talked about is how uncomfortable it is to lose what you have always thought of as the way to be as you advance to different ways of thinking. So like, for example, in the, the world of leadership studies, the, the, the big cleavage mark for students is to recognize that leadership is not what I do on the group, but it's about what we do together to achieve our common consensual goals, right? And, yeah. and the leader identity model, uh, development model talks about that. Other models of, of student leadership are founded in the idea that it's about the group. That requires leaders to recognize it's, all, it's not all about me rarely do we talk in our field about how painful of a lesson that might be for a 20-year-old student who has been very successful in a variety of paths, has had a variety of positions, has gotten pat- patted on the back, has maybe have won some awards and being able to put some things on the resume and in, in the signature line of their email about the cool things that they've done. To learn that lesson 
it's not all about you, Dave, is sometimes a painful lesson. Uh, and I, I think about the, like the deliberately developmental organizations manage that well, right? And you're yeah. talking about system. It's the culture that drives yeah. that, not a single individual that drives that. And I think that they have managed to figure out how to do that. How we apply that to our decentralized culture of higher education, I think is going to be our next challenge. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting. I was I was on a walk with my son the other day and, and he said something to the effect of, well, I just like to do it alone because I, then I don't have to worry about anyone else. I don't have to worry about them living up to my expectations or not, or not doing their part. I'll just do it on my own. Again, what's really interesting based on, well, I thought of the monkey when you first started because monkey has to give up some safety, right? There's lions down there. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And more. <laughs> right. For us to get somewhere new, there's, there's some things we're going to have to navigate and give up the safety of the tree. But I think it was interesting because I said to my son, you're going to reach a point where you're going to have to get work done with and through others, where that's going to be the skill, where that's going to be you being successful is if you can be the person that sparks that sense of team, that sense of camaraderie and getting the work done. And it may not be as perfect as you want it, but did, did the, you know, but he has to give up that perfection. He has to give up that control, that podcast episode between Bob Keegan and Keith Eigel was just so I'll put I'll put it in the show notes for listeners it was so powerful because Bob just so eloquently you know we talk about all of the upsides of growth and transformation and and isn't that a wonderful awesome thing but there's also some pain there and there's some things that we have to give up and that's hard that's not easy I agree. I, I remember a couple of years ago doing a, a study and the, the university will remain nameless, but it was a, about collaborative group projects and students experiences with collaborative group projects and their effect on motivations to lead. Uh, and we know so many stories. If, you, if you've talked to an undergraduate student who has been in collaborative group projects in the past decade, yeah. you almost unequivocally will hear a story of pain, frustration, and annoyance <laughs> and managing the group dynamics of that. The of only that thing project. they've learned is the workaround, right? Well, well, Work. Right, right, right. And, and that's that's what the data suggests, right? Yeah. Like, in, in, in it's, a, it's an oversimplification, but it's not a vast oversimplification. You could summarize my results in that we're teaching students to not be motivated to lead. Why would I stick my neck out? Because all that means is that I volunteer for more work. And we know that when people come into businesses, right, they, they have jobs. Why would I ever raise my hand and share an idea in my office if my boss is just going to say, oh, yeah, you can. Let, why don't you do that for the group? Why would, I, why would I ever suggest another idea without thinking, without intention, without creating those types of cultures and without even recognizing what, what is required to be effective? We're teaching the innovative, energetic, idealistic people who have good ideas. It's not worth it. Just do it on your own. I'm just going to work on my own leave me alone. I'm just going to be successful on my own. And I don't think we're ever going to create solutions to the complex problems that we are, that all, that we're all facing in our society. If those are the lessons that we're learning through our formal education processes. So what else? Give me a third, Dave. What else are you thinking about? <laughs> Give you a third. A third. What, what, what were the first two? I lost count. <laughs> they were very wise. They were awesome. I'm still in awe. So I just had to ask that third open-ended question. Yeah, no problem. No problem. That's what I got right now. Those are the big ones. I think I only got two. Don't, oh, in, you... in, the, in, the, in the sense of baseball, I don't want to strike out with three. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about this for a second. Maybe we can go sure. here. 
you you hosted a meeting on Friday about the collegiate leadership competition. You've done some research for us in in that space. And I mean, that's that's an organization that really is trying to create a bit of a practice field. Can we can we put a group of people together, put them through a curriculum, provide a coach? So we're adding in some of the Erickson deliberate practice or, you know, dipping our toes in that space. It's not actually sure. deliberate practice. And we're also trying to hit on some different orientations of learning. What would be some of your observations on that experience? Kind of the good, bad, and the ugly. And I mean, by all means, mention the ugly. As you look at the data, as you look at the research, what do you see? Sure. It's interesting you bring up the, the CLC, the Collegiate Leadership Competition. For the listeners that, that don't know it, these are our students who are they're like on a varsity sports team for their university. They go and then they compete against other universities in leadership competitions where they're judged on how effectively they're utilizing leadership in real time in environments that they're they're thrust into without a whole lot of preparation. After going through a semester of practice curriculum development. They have a coach that helps support that development, gives them feedback. It's a really interesting concept. And, and I'm super excited to be involved in it and, and to help contribute some, some research efforts to that. One of the things that I, I think over the past uh, generation or so is, is relatively unequivocal is that motiv- uh, competition raises motivation and energy level. Hmm. When you put people in competitive environments, their energy level goes up. What is less of a glowing uh, uh, sticker, uh, gold no, star yeah, competition, yeah, yeah, yeah. is that what they get motivated for and energized about is not necessarily the goals of what the competition was set up to and do in the first place, but to win. And I think that what the CLC does a, a pretty good job of is helping students focus on the idea that the winning, if what, what winning is, and for I know we're not on camera, but let's be where I put the air quotes on, what winning is in the CLC is uh, being effective as a leader, because we have formal uh, and there's uh, an, an explicit uh, set of rules that these students are going to be judged upon. And I think that what the data is showing around the CLC is that it is making a relatively lasting difference. Hmm. And there are the, the two things that I think are different about the CLC than most other environments that I see around leadership education is the first is it's long term. Leadership courses look like this. These are, but there are a lot of students that, that go through leadership experiences that aren't 16 weeks long, like a leadership course. This is repeated exposure over time with similar with a similar cohort to concepts. And I think that that makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I think is different is that there is intentional behaviors. Uh, students need to actually do things yeah. rather than uh, just uh, show that they've mastered some knowledge on an exam or a reflection paper or a case study and then apply those behaviors in real time with feedback from a coach. Yeah. So there's there's the ability to over time develop some some competencies that can accelerate maybe some growth in in their own behaviors and they're forced to act. And I say that that might that might have a negative connotation in some people's ears being forced to act, but I also think that that's that's similar to your example of of CPR or the surgeon where until you have to until you have to do something in real time with other people looking at you, you're not going to have that feeling of what it's actually going to look like. Yeah. So I, I like that structure of the CLC and the data is backing up the fact that when we assess students months later, their perceptions of their motivations, their perceptions of themselves as leaders are just as high as they were at the day of the competition after their 16 weeks of, of preparation. I think that there's, I, I'll call it initial data where we've only been doing this for a couple of years, the initial data is, is pretty positive. Where, where 
where we might still need to grow. And the CLC is, is like many other, many other areas. What we're not making a huge difference on is helping students recognize the nuanced differences in their skills. Uh, so this is one of the things that we talked in this workshop that I, I led with the, the coaches of CLC. Yeah. Uh, students, the anecdotal evidence is that students aren't able to five months after their experience, they're not able to top of mind, be able to talk about some of the capacities that they have. They've, they've, they've now sunk down into their subconscious, yeah. which is not necessarily the end of the world. But what it means is that if they're put into an opportunity to practice those skills, they would have to take a breath, maybe a day, maybe longer, maybe review some of the things that they've already done to enact a good solution. And, and that's not the end of the world, but that I, I think we could do a little bit better than I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, I, Dave, I taught live. I taught a course live and and I we've primarily been online, but I, it was a course that I've taught for years. And there were six or seven things that I just forgot. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> I, I forgot that we videotape the final presentation because the whole final paper is about the video. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it kind of been pruned. I was off my game. I wasn't totally on. So, you know, I, I totally get it if we're not interacting with really anything. I mean, again, we could go to a number of different domains of knowledge and learning and, if I haven't had to engage in an activity in some period of time and that has their, that repetition, it, it gets to another domain of kind of what we're trying to do, Dave, which I've been thinking about a lot, is, is this whole notion of time. And we really don't have enough time with individuals that is over a period of years to help really truly grow and develop. So when you talk about scalability, I I not only think about the 60 people sitting in a room, but I think how do we scale this across decades of an individual's life? How do we keep them in a space of mindfulness, of critical reflection? How do we keep and train people to be in that space of kind of humble curiosity where they have an eye on the world and they're really in tune with their own embodied learning where they're paying attention to their their emotions and their feelings and as an opportunity then to think more deeply, as Worgen would say, kind of go into the type two uh, thinking that uh, Kahneman talks about in thinking fast and slow. How do we build some of those habits of mind so that people stay in this space of development over decades? But even then, is three as a three month long class or as a leadership minor enough time to really build some of those skills of critical reflection and habits of mind of reflection that we need? I don't know, right? Yeah, and and I think it's the simple answer, and it's oversimplified. Is no, it's not enough time, right? Like that that goes back to the fact that most most people, if you ask them uh, who have a bachelor's degree and they're five years or longer out of their out of their bachelor's degree, and you ask them to to talk about some of the concepts that they learned in their classes, they'd be hard pressed to talk about any of those concepts uh, top of mind, right? Yeah. Uh, which then begs the question: Well, what are the tools that we should be providing them? Right. Like, I, I don't think there's anyone that's going to be in a position to say, you know, what we need to do over the lifespan. This is what we need to do for people over a lifespan. I don't think our lives are arranged that way. But I, I do think that there are lots of places where higher education can leverage the privileges that we have 
to help support those things. Yeah. So like, for example, I think about high school. High school leadership development looks very different than, than university leadership development. The, this, the experiences that, that high school student leaders have are different than university student leaders have. And, and anyone who has gone through both of those experiences might recognize, well, in high school, you have a high school advisor who mostly tells you what to do most of yeah. the time. And then in the university, the, the message that you get from a university administrator is, this is your show, go. I think that we could probably do a better job of integrating those two experiences. And you might say, well, how are we going to do that? Higher, like high school teachers don't talk to collegiate instructors, but you know who trains the high school student or the, trains the high school teachers, right? They're yeah. university professors. <laughs> and I think that we can do a better job of doing that. We do have some ability to do that. And, and then you know who trains the people who are going to be their bosses after they graduate from college? University professors do that. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that we do have some spaces where we might be able to leverage some things if we can build some consensus around what we actually mean when we're talking about leadership development. Well, I was reflecting, I was reflecting on some of that today really in, in anticipation for this call in some ways. And in, in, and as I was reflecting in some ways on the paper that we're working on right now, are we missing the mark in our first 101 course by jumping in with transformational leadership? And are there some core skills and ways of being in the world that we could be really building as a foundation for then how to do the work? and how to how to stay in this continual space of growth as a human being so that when you need some of that domain expertise you can see it you know it you go find it you access it you know this is getting into some of that learning how to learn space and some of the other concepts that I've already mentioned like critical reflection and mindfulness and are there other core functions that at least should be more of the dialogue in the beginning. If we're going to engage in leadership learning, are, are we missing the mark by just jumping into, you know, the four quadrants of situational leadership? <laughs> yeah. Most introduction to leadership courses are really, it's really an introduction to the history of leadership studies. That's really <laughs> what that course is. I mean, it's, it starts out with, these are the earliest scholars of leadership wrote about these things. And then it yep. builds on like it builds onto the, the, the skills approach after trait theory and, yep. and by itself is not bad. But yeah. if you were if you were going to ask most leadership educators, well, what, what do you think the least people need to know to effectively lead in a modern society? I don't think many of them would say they need to understand that trait theory is complex, debunked and still alive. I don't, I don't think that that's what they would identify. You want them uh, to read the three meta-analyses on contingency <laughs> theory, Dave? Right, right, right. Super important in some contexts, but not probably the least you need to know to be effective. And that's what we need to teach in our one-on-one classes. Those are the things that we need. And so, for example, you're talking about mindfulness. Uh, I would say that most people, if you, most people who are studying what, what it means to make meaning as an adult, they would say it starts with being just knowledgeable about what's going on with you, around you, which is, yeah. and within you, right? Like that's, that's a, a definition of mindfulness. That itself might be the kernel of what it means to be an effective leader, but you won't find very many leadership textbooks talking about mindfulness as a context or a concept, and then how to practice that. Yeah. Or productive discourse. In engaging in discourse with other people when, or active listening, or just some other foundational skills that a leader needs, regardless of where they are over the course of their career. 
I don't know that there's ever a time when a when an individual in a position of authority wouldn't benefit from mindfulness, from critical reflection, active listening. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. just some base level things that if we could if we could build, but even then, maybe maybe three months is not long enough to build those habits of mind that would be required. But it's a fun thought experiment because again, how do you set someone off on this journey? Because you're right, they're not going to remember the aspects of trait theory or the aspects of contingency theory or situational leadership or transformation, the four eyes. I don't know. It would be an interesting experiment. And, and that gets into some of what we've been discussing around this vertical development or constructive developmental theory. And, and it kind of goes along with that theory that if you have someone who's working at a higher order of consciousness or level, or I could go through the action logic, I could go through right, the list. Right, right, right. Will they more likely be successful when serving in these complex roles? Because they are. It's just incredibly complex. Yeah. And, and there are lots of different units of analyses for this, right? Like I, we could talk about the unit of analysis of the individual student. What does that individual student need? There's the unit of analysis of the individual class. That's what we've been talking about a little bit in this discussion too. Like what do I do as the faculty member of 60 students over the course of a semester? There's also the unit analysis of a program. If we say we are going to build effective leaders of blank profession or environment or discipline, we should probably be having a conversation of where does mindfulness fit? Just using that as an example. And it's probably not just only introduced in the first class. It's a concept that then gets applied in later classes also. So over the course of years, the iteration of that provides them some ability to be able to do that in a a way that it becomes muscle memory, right? Like they might not remember mindfulness is something that's super important because they're already doing it. They don't need to think about that. And I think we just need the, we need to think about, well, what, what's that, what does the toolbox need to look like? What needs to be in that toolbox? Because what what we have right now is a history lesson. I think that might be the title of the episode. <laughs> what we have right now is a history lesson. <laughs> important, but yes, maybe important. not the most important. Yeah, but one element, very small element of what we're trying to accomplish. Right, right. So, right. so, so many class, so many programs. I think look like our, ours does at the University of Illinois, where we have a few hundred students take our intro class. We probably have seventy that stick with the program after that and take many more classes. And we probably have 40 who take the variety of classes that would lead to a major or minor. We're we're losing 130 people, 230 people after this intro class. Let's not give them the history lesson. They don't need to know the history lesson, but they do need to know social perspective taking, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? (laughs) Active listening. Active listening, exactly. Uh, Well, Dave, as we wind down for today, I, I was thinking, should I ask a new question in these next hundred episodes? Because you're going to be oh. at guest number two hundred one. But uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to stick with the old standby here. What have you been listening to? What's what have you been watching, streaming? What's caught your eye recently that has your mind cooking? And it could have to do something with leadership, but maybe it doesn't. So I'm I'm a, a I, I talked about a couple different podcasts in episode one. I listen to podcasts early in the morning as I'm doing my warm ups before I go go out for a morning run. I got away like I I used to listen to news podcasts and politics podcasts. They stress me out now, yes. right? So I've, I've started listening to more sports podcasts. And the interesting thing about like getting the getting the updates about what's going on in football or basketball or Major League Baseball right now is locking out the players. The really lessons in team dynamics, organizational management 
dealing with complexity, unexpected things happening and being needing to make decisions about those things. I find the, like, if you listen to the, the average sports podcast about like what's going on in the sports world, most of these sports journalists are really smart people and they're teaching people how to lead in ways that you may not recognize. And if you're not thinking about it, if you're just thinking about it from the perspective of well, what's LeBron James doing in the Lakers, right? Like to take a step back, you're now doing a case study on team dynamics and how to integrate new teammates and deal with competing priorities and a future orientation versus a present orientation. And how do you make decisions in that? I, I would say in general, sports podcasts, leadership educators needed to listen to more sports podcasts. <laughs> I love it. I never would have yeah. thought of that. I never would have thought of that. Well, as you were speaking, maybe I wasn't active listening well, but as you were speaking, it made me, it made me think of the Beatles, if you have not watched their the most recent documentary about them, the Get Back. Yeah, Get Back. Oh my gosh, it is fascinating to watch their group dynamics. I was thinking I could have a whole course where they're watching this six hours of footage of the Beatles because I don't think I said this to you yet, but it's like watching a tea group. <laughs> yeah, know? it's just yeah. <laughs> leaderless kind of thing, you know, with Yoko sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> That that might be the graduate level class. Take take a few more, then 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 watch Get Back with Scott, and that'll be a way to polish out your leadership experience. <laughs> Just watch this; it'll. Do, yeah. Well, I mean, it's fascinating. It really is really really interesting to watch, and it's kept my mind cooking. Well, that's awesome. So, any sports podcast in particular that you you enjoy? Let's see. Uh, I would I would say my favorite. Uh, so I'm an I'm an NBA fan. Yeah. Uh, Zach Lowe is probably my favorite podcast. L O W E. It's called the Low Post. And if okay. you're a, if you're a basketball fan, you know what the Low Post is a basketball phrase. I, I won't go into what it means right now, but he does a deep dive into into what's going on in today's NBA. You have to be a bit of an NBA nerd to really be interested in it. But if you are, it's fascinating the dynamics that go on between NBA players, NBA players and coaches, coaches and management, management and the players. Fans, journalists, everything. It's great. I love it. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me for episode 101. I will see you again in episode 201. Maybe I look forward to it. I'm sure I'll see you before (laughs) then. Hopefully, maybe in real person, uh, real uh, real, like like actual together in the same room. (laughs) Uh, Okay, sir. Well, be well. Thanks for all you're doing. Happy New Year. Cool. Thank you for inviting me, Scott. It was a great conversation. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. My conversation with Dave sparked a lot of different thoughts. And as always, it's so much fun to check in with him. Just a great thinking partner, great scholar, great academic. It's just a a pleasure to know Dave. Scalability, that's something that's on my mind. And how do we leverage technology to explore this notion of scalability? I think that uh, that's going to be a focus of some future episodes, really diving deep into how we can use technology to not only scale some of what it is we're doing, but also leverage how we use time. And those are a couple of things that are on my mind. We are off. It's almost 2022. And that's hard to believe. So wishing you and yours all the best. Keep exploring, stay curious, be well, take care, and thanks for all you do to make this world a better place to be. Bye for now. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net.
I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.